There's a Bible in front of you. There are a lot of options. There's no excuse not to have your eyes on a Bible somewhere, and you're going to want to do that as we look at this great passage together. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we um, walk into this room with a lot of needs and a lot of hurts, a lot of pain, a lot of things on our minds. A lot of joys, a lot of things to celebrate. But we recognize that what we need above all, God, is to hear from you. What our hearts are most desperate for, no matter what we're walking through in this moment, is to hear from your voice, to hear from your words. So, God, we pray that this word would penetrate us, that you would meet our every need in it. That if we're hurting, we'll be reminded that we have a sovereign God who's good and cares. That if we're celebrating, we'll be reminded we still desperately need you, God, no matter what we're walking through, no matter what success we've had this week. Don't let us get too high or too low and miss the whole point that we walk moment by moment, step by step, by the Spirit. And so help us, God, even as we look at this word, we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So how are we doing reading the book of Jeremiah? Loving it? Yes? Uh, not the most cheerful book in the Bible. You won't be surprised if you're reading it that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, right? He didn't want to write this either. This is not fun for anyone. Don't worry, though. We've got Lamentations coming up. <laughs> a book whose title tells the story. Followed by Ezekiel, which is also a ton of fun. But here we are, if you have absolutely no idea what we're talking about, and it feels like one big inside joke, it's not. We are reading through the Bible together. We're on day 233 of this journey through Scripture. And if you're new with us or you haven't jumped in yet, now's a perfect time to jump in. Although I feel like I didn't just give the best sales pitch, it still is the best time to jump into the Bible and finish up with us. We are quickly approaching the New Testament, which is amazing. And so just to catch you up where we are in the biblical storyline... Uh, In 722, the Assyrians captured the northern tribes of Israel and took them into captivity. We've seen that happen. And here we are now 130 years later. And the southern tribes of Judah are now on the brink of going into exile themselves at the hands of the Babylonians. And so what happens in the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah is we get this scathing rebuke from the prophet about their covenant unfaithfulness, their idol worship, all of these different things. And he says, here's what's coming. The same fate that met the northern tribes is coming for you. You're going into exile. That's chapters 1 to 29. Then in verses 30, or in chapters 34 to 52... Uh, We see this destruction of Jerusalem. 
followed by seven chapters at the very end of God's judgment on the nations. Okay, so zoom out. 1 through 29, judgment. 34 to 52, judgment. But right in the middle, in 30 to 33, we have these four great chapters of hope. Where God says, no matter how bad it's gotten, no matter how far you've gone, sin won't have the last word. I'm still at work. I'm still doing something, no matter how bad it might seem. And the pinnacle of these four chapters comes in Jeremiah 31, what we call the new covenant. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. But before we jump right into the new covenant, we have to realize and ask ourselves, what exactly is a covenant? This is an idea that we've seen over and over and over again throughout the Bible, that when God relates to his people, when God relates to us, he does it through a covenant. And it's so good because it challenges us to think about our relationship with God, because there's really two kinds of people in this room when you think about a relationship with God mainly how he relates to us. We either think he's a God of law. And so he comes and he says, here's the deal. Here's all the things that I expect of you. Here's all the things to do. Here's all the things to not do. This is how we relate with each other. Or you think he's a God of love, that it doesn't really matter how we act. That kind of matters, but definitely now that's kind of on the periphery. God's mostly about grace. He's mostly about love. It's all kind of unconditional. And what a covenant does is it brings both of those ideas together. And it says it's not one or the other, it's both. That a covenant is more than just a legal, dry, binding contract. But it's also more than just a regular relationship that's all love. It comes with duties and obligations. I saw this play out yesterday. I got to do a a wedding yesterday, which I love doing. And a wedding is just the perfect place where you see a covenant uh, happen, where you see both law and love come together. Because when I was doing premarital counseling with this couple, I never said, well, are you guys in love? Well, it's like assumed, right? Like they're getting married. Of course they're in love. But then we do the wedding ceremony, right? And we don't just show up at the wedding ceremony and go, hey, everybody, guess what? They love each other. And we all go, yay. No, they do like vows, And then we sign pieces of paper that make it a legal binding contract. And so it's both of these things together. It's why I encourage people not to write their own vows. Uh, It's okay if you did. But I was at a wedding one time, and um, the, the couple made vows, and they said, I promise to snuggle you to death every night. I wasn't even married yet, but I remember thinking, I you do not want to promise that. Like, you just don't. For a thousand reasons that we don't have to get into. (laughs) A covenant is a relationship of both law and love, and marriage is a great picture. That's why in verse 32, God said, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. And so the big question is this. Why do we need a new covenant in the first place? What in the world was wrong with the old one? Eventually, we're going to get to Hebrews Uh, And in Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31. It's the longest quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old. And what the author of Hebrews says when he quotes to Jeremiah 31 is he says the Old Covenant was faulty. That's the word he uses. That it wasn't that it was um, sinful or wrong, just that it couldn't accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. There were problems with it. It was incomplete in some way. 
And so what we want to look at first is what are the problems with the old covenant and why do we need a new one? So let me show you three problems with the old covenant. The first one is this, perpetual sin. Perpetual sin. If, you're, um, if you are reading through the Bible with us, can we just be honest, just a team meeting real quick? The Israelites are exhausting, are they not? Like, I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year. This is a grind. We're doing this. Can we change up the plot like a little bit? I mean, over and over again, right? Idolatry, immorality, scathing rebuke from God, exile is coming. I mean, ho- holy cow, like... Over and over, we get the same idea, but Jeremiah says, hey, we really shouldn't be surprised by that. And he kind of lays out for us how sin works, this cycle of sin that I want to show to you really quick. And just, we're going to go back through Jeremiah, just a few verses of how Jeremiah shows why this perpetual sin exists in their lives and why it exists in ours. The first one is idolatry. Idolatry. Look back at Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen, this is God speaking. Listen to these words from God to his people. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's where sin always starts. It always starts with the idea that something else besides God has to satisfy us, that God can't actually meet our deepest needs and desires. That's where it always starts. And so these Israelites find something else to worship, find something else to satisfy them. It always leads, secondly, to immorality. Idolatry leads to immorality. I don't know if you remember Jeremiah chapter 7, or maybe you haven't read it. I'll just summarize it for you. It's like Jeremiah's like pinnacle moment where he's uh, rebuking the people. And he's talking about all this sin that they've gotten into and kind of the culmination, like what he builds up to is he says, it's gotten so bad. Your, your idolatry has gotten so bad that you're offering your kids on the altar, sacrificing them, killing them to other gods. And we read that and think, how do you get there? How do you get to the point where you're putting your kid on an altar to sacrifice to some foreign God just to meet some need and desire that you have? How do you get to that point? How do things get so bad? And Jeremiah says it always starts with idolatry. It always starts when we worship something besides God. And the same is true for us. Sin is always a direct result of idolatry. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how we might see this in our own lives. If we idolize comfort as our ultimate satisfaction, what happens when our comfort is threatened? We get mad. We get angry. We blow up. And we think, well, our, our problem, our sin, is the anger. And we never go, well, why did I get angry? It's because I idolized comfort. I just thought if I could be comfortable, I'd be everything I wanted. If we idolize money, fear naturally grips us when our money is threatened. If we idolize control, we get anxious when life gets out of control. If we idolize success, we'll only be content and secure when we're at the top. And so what you have to do 
When you see some sin in your life is trace it back and go, where's the idolatry that started that? What's the thing I started to look to to satisfy me besides God that ultimately led to the sin that I see on the surface? That's so hard to do, but it's so necessary if you're ever going to have any hope of fighting sin in your life to find the root idolatry that's causing it all. That's where Jeremiah leads us. And then he he says, God tries to call his people back, begging them to repent. But he says, thirdly, in this cycle of sin, there's insensitivity in their hearts. Insensitivity in their hearts. Jeremiah 5.3, O Lord, you have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. A hundred times in the book of Jeremiah, God calls the people to repent, and they just won't do it. They've become insensitive to the voice of God in their lives, which eventually leads to the last one, which is indifference. Jeremiah 6.10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of God is to them an object of scorn, and they take no pleasure to it. So you see this cycle. Where it ends up is they stop repenting, and they finally get to the point where they can't hear from God at all. Their hearts are numb to the call of God in their lives. So we had something die in our wall a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what it was, uh, but it deserved it because it tormented us for a week straight. It would wait until we were asleep. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and then all of a sudden you would hear this scratching noise in the wall. It was right by our bedroom, right by it. I sleep heavier than Jen, so she like hits me and is like, there's something in our house. And I'm like, no, it's in the wall. It's not going to get us. Go back to sleep. Well, that didn't work. (laughs) So it tormented us for weeks, and then it finally died. And I thought, you deserve that. But what I didn't know is the greatest punishment was to come. <laughs> the smell was unbearable. We Googled it because you just Google things. How do you solve this problem? It's like, oh, cut a hole in your wall. Perfect. I'm equipped to do that. N- no. Uh, or otherwise, it'll decompose in about two weeks. It's like, okay, I can do two weeks. We can do this. We can do this. And so, uh, what, what would y'all have done? I don't know what you're laughing at. <laughs> So about a week later, I I remember this moment where I I went into our room and I said, Jen, I can't smell it anymore. It's gone. And she said, you're crazy. It smells worse than it ever has. And I was like, no, it's gone. A few days later, she said, you're right. It is gone. And then we had friends over to sleep at our house. And they were kind and, and so gracious and they would never said anything. But I said to them at one moment, hey, um, does it smell like a little funky to y'all in here, like at all? And they're like, yeah, like a little bit. <laughs> what happened? We got used to the smell to eventually the point we could not smell it anymore. A funny story to tell a terrible tragedy of what sin does to us. That eventually it numbs us to the point where we're insensitive and indifferent to the voice of God and we just don't hear it anymore. And so if that's you this morning, if you're in that place where you feel like you're not hearing the voice of God, trace back the cycle. If y'all throw it back up there one more time. If you're in that last place of indifference, where did you become insensitive and stop repenting? 
If you're struggling with some kind of sin, what's the idol you can trace it back to? This is how sin always works. It worked like this for the God's people in the old covenant, and it can work the same in the new. And so this is a picture of their hearts and our hearts as well. The second problem with the old covenant we see is that there were pointless sacrifices. Pointless sacrifices. Jeremiah 6.20. What use it to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet came from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Here's what we've started to see happen all through the old covenant and in the Old Testament. God's people elevate these like ritual moments to the pinnacle of worship. And so they go, all I really have to do is follow the sacrificial system. Meanwhile, they're, they're disregarding God's moral commands. They don't care about that part. They're just still offering sacrifices to take care of it. And God's like, this has nothing to do with anything I ever meant to happen. This is not the point. The point was obedience, and if you did sin, to offer the sacrifices. The obedience was the worship that I desired. But they've elevated these ritual moments above obedience and above righteous lives of worship. And so we also have to ask ourselves here, are we in any way in danger of doing that? Are we in any way in danger of elevating ritual moments like this, where we gather and worship, which is a great thing, and confession of sin, over what God wants, which is righteous lives, real worship through that. Not where our hearts are far from him and we just keep going through the motions. It's not what God wants. It's not what he ever wanted. And finally, that leaves us with the third problem with the old covenant, which is powerless people. Powerless people. Here's the end result and the biggest problem. Ultimately, you have a people who are living in perpetual sin, offering pointless sacrifices, and they are totally powerless to do anything about it. Here's Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So there's this picture of well-worn pathways of sin and the lives of God's people till they finally get to the point where they can't turn back even if they wanted to. They're powerless. And so this is the situation that we find God's people in. There's the three problems with the old covenant. Now, this is the moment where God comes on the scene. This nation about to go into exile with powerlessness and pointless sacrifices and all this sin. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. That is such a key moment that we might read right over. What does God say? Oh my word, y'all are a disaster. I'm going to keep the same covenant and find new people. No. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant to solve the problems of the old one, and I'm sticking with you, Judah and Israel. Isn't that great news? Isn't that great news that in your lowest moment, think of it, your worst moment this year where you felt at the absolute pit of despair that you don't have to wonder, is this the moment that God's finally going to go, enough, new person, you're out. I had a moment like that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jen and I got in a, a big fight. I, I feel like I always talk about my marriage fights. We have a good marriage, actually. I hope you all know that. But this is the example I have, so we're going with it. <laughs> we got in a really big fight. and It was one of those fights where it was 100% my fault. And I dug in and got stubborn and wouldn't apologize. 
And I said things that I immediately knew I was going to regret, things that I would be ashamed to admit to you right now. And you know all, that moment where all the things you hate most about yourself show up at once? Have you ever had a moment like that? Satan loves to take advantage of those opportunities. Oh, by the way, it's not just this. Remember this? And this and this? And I can just remember sitting there thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? You know what would make that moment a whole lot worse? If I didn't have the promise of the new covenant that God was going to stay with me even at that lowest moment. And I had to also wonder, is this the point of no return where God says, this is it? No. God in the new covenant shows us. He sticks with his people. He's faithful to the covenant even when we are unfaithful. He's tirelessly committed to us. So he gives us this new covenant, which also comes with three promises. We've seen three problems with the old covenant. Here's three promises of the new. The first one is new power. New power. One of the mistakes that we can make when we think about the difference in the old covenant and the new covenant, and you could really think Old Testament, New Testament, really synonymous. One of the differences that we, uh, uh, mistakes that we make is we think, okay, Old Covenant, Old Testament, mostly about uh, law and obedience. New Covenant, New Testament, mostly about grace and unconditional love. But the reality is both covenants have law and grace. God hasn't all of a sudden lowered his standards. He still cares about obedience. He still cares. The difference is, We now have the power to actually obey. That's the difference. And so look back at the text, verse 32. He says, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. So you can remember, right, in the old covenant, what's the pinnacle moment? Moses comes down from the mountain, Exodus 32, and then again in 34, because the first one's got kind of messed up. God wrote the inscribed on stone, the law, right? He put it on stone. What was the As great as that was, what was the problem? It's still external. It's still not going to change them. It's just written somewhere else. Their hearts stay the same. It's not as if their hearts have all of a sudden changed. It's not as if the law comes and the people are all of a sudden like, oh, if we'd just known the law, we would have obeyed all along. It reminds me of um, my used to do youth ministry. There's a line. You have to be very careful between rules and too many rules. Here's why. Too many rules start to become ideas. For example, oh, I never even thought to bring fireworks on this trip and set them off in the toilet. Thank you for giving me that idea. (laughs) It's not as if the rules come in and our hearts change. Jeremiah has already told us this. Look at 17, chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It's engraved on the tablet of his heart. His words are so intentional. What difference does it make if you have the law on the stone when sin is engraved on the heart? It can't change you. You can't have the power to obey it if your heart is set on sin. And so the reality is, outside of very few people in the Old Testament, their hearts aren't changed, and any obedience they could muster was out of duty or fear. And so we need internal transformation, and the only hope that we have is for God to one day come in and say, I'm going to write the law on their hearts. Here's why this matters so deeply. 
We don't enter the new covenant through obedience to the law. That's not how we get in. God invites us into the new covenant and he gives us the ability to obey the law. Do you see the difference? Every other religion in the world says, do this and live. Christianity says, you've been made alive, now do this. God gives us the ability, he gives us the power. And for the first time we obey out of love because God has transformed our hearts. Let me give you an example of how this might play out. Imagine um, a husband who comes home um, from a long day at work and his wife has had a long day at home with little kids and he comes in with a dozen roses and says, hey, um, I thought I read somewhere it was the duty of a good husband to give his wife flowers. So I set a calendar reminder on my phone to every six weeks bring you flowers and it came up today. So here you go. The wife is going to melt with tears, right? Like, <laughs> Compare that to a husband comes in and says, hey, I just could not stop thinking about you all day. And I know you don't really like flowers and it's ridiculous. They cost $20 for a dozen, but I just had to buy you these because I love you and just wanted to. You see the difference? Same act, same act. Way different heart totally different heart. And this is the power that we now have not to obey just out of duty or fear, but out of love because our hearts have been changed in the new covenant. Here's, here's why that matters. We tend to think that the most obedient people in the world are the dutiful, diligent people. The new covenant teaches us the most obedient people in the world are the ones who understand grace the most. The more that grace penetrates your heart, the more you're wanna gonna obey God out of love. That's how it works. And so don't just think, I mean, yes, there's a place for obedience in the Christian life, but there's also a place for getting grace down deep in your heart and the natural outflow is gonna be thankfulness and obedience to God. That's what the new covenant does. It gives us the power to live like that. So new power, secondly, new presence. Look back at verse 34. Jeremiah says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here's the picture that Jeremiah is giving us. He's saying, hey, remember in the old covenant, here's how it worked. You think back to Exodus, for example. How did the people meet with God? Okay, well, everybody kind of gathered around. You came out of your tent and you watched Moses walk into the tent of meeting to meet with God for you. And then Moses came out with this glowing face, right? And says, here's what God says. And the rest of the Old Testament works that way. An exclusive, limited class of people gets to get to meet with God. Nobody else. And then God says, here's the difference in the new covenant. Not just access for a limited, exclusive class of people, not just the best and the brightest, but the least and the lost, access for everyone. Presence to the throne of God for everyone. How's that possible? It's possible because we too have a mediator. But he doesn't just go into the tent of meeting for us. He, as it were, rips the tent in half and says, come in boldly through my name. And so we all get presence with God. And we, we just have to take a second here and realize what we're saying. Just back up just for a second. There's a temptation when we read the Old Testament to go, man, I wish I could have been there, right? 
Like if I could have just seen that, like I would have actual faith, like the Red Sea and the plagues and like, you know, angel armies, like, man, if I could have just seen that, like my faith would be so much stronger. And the old covenant people are looking at us going, you have no idea what you have. No idea. Presence with God whenever you want it. This is what it was all about. Centuries of people who came before us wanted the access that we have at this exact moment. And I just have to ask you, is that the kind of Christianity that you have? Or have you settled for a Christianity that's transitory where you just say, hey God, here's my sin. Can I just have forgiveness so one day I can go to heaven? Or do you go, oh man, I get to be with God. Can I give you a life verse if you don't have one? This is a great life verse. All right, you ready? Acts 4.13. It says, Now when they, sold, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Man, that is an amazing verse. These religious leaders see Peter and John, and there's like, they're like, here's all we know about meeting with God. Upper echelon people get to meet with God like Moses and he comes out of the tent and he's obviously a different person. Here's these dudes. I don't even think they went to middle school. They got no formal training. They're blue collar and there is something different about them. And the only thing I can figure out is that they've been with Jesus. Now, of course, they have no idea what they're saying because they don't believe Jesus is God at all, right? But in a very real sense, they've nailed it. They've nailed it. Peter and John are transformed people. So what makes them different? They've been with Jesus. You get to do that too. You get to be a transformed person too. You get to meet with God and come out glowing whenever you want. And so let me just read you this quote. This is a long quote from A.W. Tozer from The Pursuit of God, which is a great little book that I'd recommend highly. And here's what he says. Consider where you are. This is not a guilt trip, by the way. That's not the point. The point is to say, do we know what we have? Listen to Tozer. To most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence, which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. Others do not even go so far as this. They only know of him by hearsay. They've never bothered to think the matter out for themselves, but have heard about him from others and have put belief into the back of their minds, along with the various odds and ends that make up their total creed. To many others, God is but an ideal, another name for goodness or beauty or truth. These notions about God are many and varied, but they who hold them have one thing in common. They don't know God in personal experience. The possibility of intimate acquaintance with him has not entered their minds. While admitting his existence, they do not think of him as knowable in the sense that we know things are people. But over and against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known through personal experience. I just love that line from Hosea 6.3 where Hosea says, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Because we get to do it, y'all. We get to do it. We get to know him personally. So let's take advantage 
Lastly and quickly, we have a new priest. New priest. That's the final new thing we get in the new covenant. Verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Kind of the last problem with the old covenant was basically this. All along, God was allowing for the sacrifice of bulls and goats to cover the sins of his people. But it doesn't work, right? It's just a temporary idea. It's just a temporary thing pointing to one day. This ultimate sacrifice that Jeremiah talks about here in the new covenant, a sacrifice that will be made, that will so remove sins that you could say God remembers them no more. They're so far from his consciousness. They've been paid for so fully. He doesn't even consider thinking about them again. And can't you just picture these people on the brink of exile going, that'll be great. And then 600 years pass. And generation after generation is wondering, what kind of sacrifice was Jeremiah talking about? Until Jesus comes, and at the Last Supper in Luke 22, he raises the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus saying, it's all about me. I'm the priest who has come, but I'm also the sacrifice. The sacrifice that's going to be offered to fully and finally pay for your sins, to remove them so far from God's mind that he'll never consider them again. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time till his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is a new priest. Here's why. He's made his sacrifice. And he's not right now in heaven busily getting the next one ready. He's sitting because he's done. And the picture for us is this, brothers and sisters, it's finished. That's what he said on the cross and he meant it. Our sins have been fully and finally paid for. God remembers them no more. And so let me finish with this quote from Corey Ten Boom. She says, God takes our sins, past, present, and future, and dumps them in the sea and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. <laughs> what a savior. Let me pray. Father, what a privilege it is to live under the new covenant. that we have this kind of unparalleled new power that allows us to obey you. We have new presence with you, new access into your throne room whenever we want it. And we have a new priest who has fully and finally paid for our sins. We are a privileged people to live at this point in the redemptive history. And so, God, I think my prayer is simple for us. We want to, I want these friends of mine and me to live out of this new covenant reality. That we would live with power and with presence and with the knowledge that we have a perfect and faithful high priest who has already fully and finally paid for our sins. 
And so, God, write that reality on our hearts even deeper. And we pray that you would hear our worship now. You deserve it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.